Father in heaven, this whole series is about your Holy Spirit coming upon us, so we're going to need that again today. I pray your Spirit will be present and that we will not resist your Spirit, but we will listen in Jesus' name, amen. I have set for my initial goal today in this message a most unlikely and perilous task. It is my purpose to clearly show you from the Scriptures why you cannot be saved. And doing so will not be all that hard for me. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm, and try to put a happy, don't try to put a happy face on what I'm trying to achieve here. I'm not trying to prove from Scripture that you cannot save yourself. Ironically, in truth, doing that might even be a little more difficult than what I hope to do. No, what I hope to demonstrate clearly to you, based on Old Testament Scripture, which were the writings available during the time when the apostles began bearing witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when the church was born, based on Old Testament Scripture, that you and I, in all our Gentileness, should unquestionably have been excluded from God's people and from God's church. And by the time we're halfway through today, I hope you will be able to appreciate what a scandalous, presumptuous, and provocative thing it was that Peter did when he went to visit a certain Roman named Cornelius. We're in the last few weeks of our brief fall series entitled Fresh Wind, and we are for this series uh, in the book of Acts considering various stories where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon people like you and like me, and then asking ourselves, what impact did the coming of the Spirit have on the people on whom the Spirit was poured? And in addition, there's another question we're seeking to answer each week, and it goes like this. What would I become if the Holy Spirit fell on me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. For today, let me suggest this regarding the issue of the Holy Spirit falling upon us. When the Holy Spirit comes, you might just become more than you ever wanted to be. I don't know if on the day in question, Peter became more than he ever wanted to be, but I do know on the day we will be considering today, he became more than he ever expected to be. But first, the case against you and against me, unless, of course, you are Jewish, if you are, you are exempted from the following arguments. The case against you and me lies initially in the concept of the sovereignty of God and in, and in His sovereign prerogative to choose one group of people and reject another. I don't think this could be more starkly put than this. Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And guess who Esau is? That's right. You and me, the unchosen ones. And being unchosen had consequences. For one thing, it meant not knowing the God of heaven, not knowing His laws and decrees. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. This is Moses talking to Israel. He says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. That's us. Who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Your ancestors did not have as good a laws as Israel. You were unchosen. And the people that God chose would be blessed by God and be powerful. Deuteronomy 28, verse 7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you. Guess who the enemies are? That's us. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples of the earth, that's us, here's our part, will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. But all this blessing was dependent upon Israel remaining faithful. And the primary thing Israel was to do to remain faithful was to stay away from you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Apopkaites, Floridians, North Americans of either European or African descent, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Talking about you. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession.
And guess what? Unless you are a descendant of Jacob, God did not choose your people. And because God didn't choose your people or my people, we needed to be excluded. Ezra 4, verse 1, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, that's us, by the way, heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia commanded us. So I hope you're beginning to get the picture here. You're excluded. You're on the outside. You're not welcome. You're unchosen. And it's bad when the chosen and the unchosen mix. Ezra 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, this is Ezra, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the word of God of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. What was the sin that appalled Ezra to his core? Their sin was the sin of mingling with people like you and me. Even Jesus seems to support this bias. I'll let Mark tell the story. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, Jesus told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Ouch. So what do you think? Have I made a pretty strong case for why you and I cannot be saved? And why it would not be safe to include people like us in God's church? We were not chosen. Most of our ancestors were either godless or pagan or violent or some combination of the three. And whenever God's chosen people hung around us too long, they didn't make us righteous. We made them evil. So why would anyone think we might be included in the grace of Christ? 
Well, short answer, no one did. So much was this true that the Holy Spirit had to take the lead to get us in. And this is the story of how it happened. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment, a Roman soldier. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Now note carefully this next verse. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter had to be told directly to go with the men or else he never would have. Because just between us, it wasn't always a good idea when you were a Jewish Christian to go off with Roman soldiers. Kind of a bad history there. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house. You would read right over that and not even realize that's a problem. And come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. Now, I don't know if they went along because they were curious or they went along as a security detachment. I'm not sure, but they went. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside. That doesn't strike you, does it? went inside and found a large gathering of people. Now note what Peter says here, for it reveals what his default understanding of the reality of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles was until God gave him this vision. Verse 28, Peter said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And that was Peter's normal operational reality until two days ago. But God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And in this moment, a whole new reality begins to open to Peter's eyes. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now I want you to realize what's being said here. Up until now, Peter has believed God does show favoritism and does not necessarily accept just anyone. Verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Now, do you remember as we've been talking, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And we talked about before, in a couple weeks back, that what would they be witnesses of? They would be witnesses of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the result of witnessing to that would lead to repentance on the part of those who heard. Remember, we've seen this pattern. Well, we're about to see it again. He's just told them about the life. Now watch what comes next, verse 39. We are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, the death. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen, the resurrection. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him that, now catch this, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And then it happened. It was a big deal already that Peter and his companions had gotten this far. But what came next blew their minds. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Can you believe it? For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for several days. Okay, a couple points. Without the vision and the direct command to go, Peter would never have gone to Cornelius' house. Second, the normal way the Holy Spirit fell upon believers to date was that they were baptized and then the apostles laid their hands on them and then the Holy Spirit came. But since there was little likelihood Peter or the others would either baptize them or lay their hands on them, the Holy Spirit had to come upon them even before the ordinances took place. So note, the beginning of the evangelizing of Gentiles was not the result of compassion on the part of the church for Gentiles, nor was it the result of a careful Bible study leading to the conviction we should reach out to Gentiles. Nor had Peter quietly harbored in his heart the dream of one day winning Gentiles to the faith. He never even thought about it. The beginning of the evangelizing of the Gentiles, and by that I mean you and me, in whole, from conception to execution, was the work of the Holy Spirit. And as much as it seems to us absurdly self-evident that the gospel was for all humans, you must understand this truth was a mystery in that time. Even Paul, who had become the most well-known of the evangelists to the Gentiles, had this to say. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he doesn't decide, and as I reminds him of something. So he says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you, that is, 
the mystery made known to me, how? By revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now catch these words which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed. How? By the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And what's this great mystery? That in the past they didn't know, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit through revelation to the apostles and the prophets? Well, here it is. Let this shock you. Here's the great mystery to Paul. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Blew Paul's mind. You mean the Gentiles can join? Shocking, right? Unless, of course, you're a Gentile. Okay, so what's the point? I started by telling you that I wanted to set about from Scripture to show you why you Gentiles cannot be saved. I think I did a pretty good job. Y'all were pretty down there for a while. (laughs) And then my intention was to show that based largely upon texts like I read you, it was never Peter's nor the rest of the apostles' intention to set out to evangelize Gentiles, which is kind of interesting because Acts chapter 1 verse 8 said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But all this makes the point well enough that when we come to the Bible, we read what we're expecting to find. Even though to us, these words of Jesus, this passage clearly includes us because we're the ends of the earth, right? It could have just as easily been read from a different perspective. It could just as easily have been read that the mission is to witness to the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Judea and, okay, maybe the Samaritans because they're kind of cousins anyway. At least they circumcise, right? And to the Jews of the diaspora spread throughout the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Right? You wouldn't have been considered crazy for believing that. Now, in truth, this is getting at the ultimate point I want you to get today. It's not enough to have the Scriptures if you don't also have the Holy Spirit to illuminate what you read. After the Cornelius incident, no doubt many of the believers went back to Scripture and began to notice some other texts in a new way for the first time. Texts that show it was always the plan to include the Gentiles. And it was only a mystery because the time for the revelation of what was for them a present truth had not yet come. The inclusion of the Gentiles was a present truth not revealed until that day with Cornelius. 
Now, there's plenty of examples once you realize that truth and go back and start looking. For example, God said to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations, right? And how about this one? I love this one, Isaiah 49. Reading this text after Jesus would be so radically different than reading it before. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. That's us, Gentiles. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, we know this is talking about Jesus. And this next phrase will seal it, if you remember well, the seven churches series. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. So everyone who read this passage up to the time of Jesus believed this was about the nation of Israel. But everyone who accepted the present truth of Jesus recognized, no, this is about Jesus. Verse 4, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, now catch these words, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach where? To the ends of the earth. Those were Jesus' exact words. That means we are in. And it's always been the plan. Just saving Israel was too small a thing for Jesus. He came to save the whole world. Even if the disciples didn't at first realize it. Jesus isn't just the Savior of Israel. Jesus is my Savior too. So we need to wrap things up today, but there's one or two more points we need to make. I mentioned it a moment ago. It's not enough to have the Scriptures if you don't also have the Holy Spirit to illuminate what you read. You see, the problem is this. Sometimes it doesn't matter if we're honest, fair, kind, loving, and desirous of good, because I think that describes Peter, right? These things can all be true but we can still be wrong about some pretty important stuff. And if we aren't open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, our wrongness can become a real problem. Do you remember Stephen's main charge against the Sanhedrin? Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen doesn't accuse them of not knowing the Scriptures. 
They knew the Scriptures. Their problem was they always resisted the Holy Spirit. And Paul would later add this charge to those among his people who refused to accept the present truth of Jesus. And in many ways, Paul turns the discussion we started with completely on its head. Acts 28, verse 25. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. At the time, Peter's visit to the home of Cornelius was shocking to many of the believers. And when Peter got back to Jerusalem, he had to answer to them. You can find the story in the first part of Acts chapter 11. As I have demonstrated already today with just a few texts, these believers in Jerusalem had strong scriptural support for their discomfort with Peter's action. But herein the challenge lies. Present truth is never stagnant. It is always moving forward under the command of the Holy Spirit. And even if you have all the Scripture memorized and systematized in a matter satisfactory for today, you may find that tomorrow present truth has moved on and left you behind. Now I know, I get it. It's uncomfortable to think this way because it implies that what was good enough for yesterday isn't good enough for tomorrow. But hasn't that always been true? And isn't that what we have always said to other believers in Jesus who learn about the importance of the Sabbath for the first time? We say, God does not hold against you the things you did not knowing any better, right? But now that you know, he calls you to faithfulness to present truth, right? Do we think these words only apply to others? And not to us. And now I am truthfully somewhat loath to finish this message with one more point I feel compelled to make. Yet I can't help but feel it is the Spirit that drives me to it. I pray I am discerning correctly. Normally I try to limit what I say to what I believe God once said to the congregation that gathers in this place each Sabbath. But today I feel compelled to speak to a larger congregation, the congregation of faithful Seventh-day Adventists around the world. The point I feel compelled to make is this. If Peter 
and the others had used the same approach we, as a worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, have used in recent years as the means by which to determine whether or not Gentiles could be admitted into the church of God, it is my fear we all, except the small handful of descendants of Jacob here, we all would still to this day find ourselves on the outside looking in. Why? Because the answer to God's intention for expanding the mission, which was the inclusion of Gentiles with Israel in the church, the answer, while present in Scripture, was not necessarily definitive in Scripture until the church was willing to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. And in like manner, it seems to me that for us, the answer to the great dilemma that has consumed so much of our energy and goodwill these past few years has not proven definitive in Scripture studies alone. Therefore, it seems clear to me that this is one of those times when we need to be seeking to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit, not in the study, not in the boardroom, but in the field. By this, I don't mean to say leading of the Spirit as in I am certain that the Holy Spirit is telling me that this is right and that is wrong, but rather leading as in actually looking at what is taking place, where the Spirit is at work, through whom the blessings of the Spirit is coming to the people of God. And I am, if for some reason you hadn't already discerned, speaking of the issue of women as local church elders, women as pastors, and women being ordained. I can excuse, I suppose, the conclusion that women are not to serve in leading roles in the church when it comes from ones who have never seen how effective women have been in these roles. I consider it a conclusion lacking in practical evidence, but excusable based on that lack of evidence. The issue is, for such ones, a present truth they have not yet encountered. But I find it to be a deliberate closing of the eyes and stopping of the ears, a rejecting of the clear witness of the Holy Spirit when I hear people who have clearly seen the working of God through women attempt to make the case that despite their effectiveness, these women must be stopped because it's wrong. That's not how present truth works. Now, context. I never set out to be a promoter of women in ministry. I wasn't necessarily against it, but if you know me, I'm kind of a traditionalist at heart and not really an activist when it comes to causes. Not my thing. But neither am I a hypocrite, or at least not one when I realize I'm in danger of being one. And it would be nothing short of hypocrisy a resisting of a clear demonstration of the Holy Spirit, an intentional closing of my eyes and stopping of my ears for me to suggest I have seen less effectiveness and less of a calling upon the lives of the women pastors with which I have served compared to the lives of the men pastors with which I have served. And my sample size is not small. I have pastored with at least 10 men 
and at least eight women. And if I was forced to do so, I probably would have to give the nod to the eight women as a group over the ten men as a group when it comes to commitment and faithfulness to the cause of Jesus. I certainly would give them the nod when it comes to difficulty and conditions under which they've served. So as much as I desire to be a cooperator and not to cause problems where problems need not be caused, I cannot do so when it denies present truth. I'm left with nothing I can say about all this beyond what Peter said to the brethren in Jerusalem. If God gave them the same gift He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? One of the great truths that Acts 10 teaches us, if we will be honest and apply the implications to ourselves, is that we don't already know everything that we need to know about God and His purpose and His mission. And sometimes we aren't going to get to present truth unless we let the Holy Spirit lead the way. And so this is what I say to my faithful Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters around the world. After years of study, The best of our theologians of every stripe and inclination have admitted they cannot reach a definitive consensus on this issue. Though, for the record, it is only a small minority of our scholars who believe that the Scriptures prohibit women from church leadership. Therefore, it is time to stop trying to solve this issue in the study or in the boardroom and time to let the Holy Spirit take the lead in the field. To you decision makers in this country and around the world, most of whom are men, I ask this question. How many of you have actually served alongside a female pastor in a local congregational setting? Not as an administrator, but as a fellow pastor with a woman. How many? Not many of you have, have you? So why is it you think you know so much about it? And on another note, I have served as a local pastor with at least eight different conference-paid women in at least three settings. Yet none of you have ever asked me whether or not I am able to discern the difference between the Holy Spirit endowment upon the women versus the endowment upon the men. Why have you not asked people who know? Now I know we all want to be faithful until Jesus comes and to be found faithful upon His arrival. But my brothers and sisters, present truth is never stationary for long. No, it moves forward under the command of the Holy Spirit and sometimes... Scholarship just has to catch up. It is not faithful to be found resisting the moving of the Holy Spirit. It is not faithful to resist present truth. I know this issue scares people, but there is nothing in it that in any way challenges any of the landmarks or the pillars of our faith. The only thing this issue challenges is our traditions and our cultural bias. 
There were plenty of Jews in Jerusalem that had great texts saying Gentiles shouldn't be allowed into the church. But the Holy Spirit said otherwise and introduced a new present truth. And we think to resist the Spirit in our day with far weaker texts than they had Is that really something we want to do? Go back and review the first part of this message or come up with your own anti-Gentile inclusion text. You will see your biblical case against Gentile Christians will be much stronger than your biblical case against ordaining women. Much stronger. The Scriptures will be a lamp unto our feet to the extent we allow the words to be illuminated by the Spirit of God. But nothing will be more harmful to the cause of God than one with great biblical knowledge, yet deafness to the Holy Spirit. Ellen White said it well, Desire of Ages, page 605. The Sadducees had flattered themselves that they of all men adhered most strictly to the Scriptures. But Jesus showed that they had not known their true meaning. That knowledge must be brought home to the heart by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Their ignorance of the Scriptures and the power of God, He declared to be the cause of their confusion of faith and darkness of mind. So what can we become When the Holy Spirit falls upon us, anything the Holy Spirit wants us to be. Welcome to the world of present truth.